So I'm not sure if you have ever heard of the boxer, James Braddock. James or Jim, Jim Braddock. James Braddock was an amateur boxer in New York City during the Roaring Twenties. Eventually he turned pro in 1926 and soon he earned himself a, a shot at the heavyweight title in 1929. Unfortunately, Braddock lost the fight and that led to him for a series of, of unfortunate events. In that fight, he broke his hand in several places, meaning that he couldn't box anymore. The stock market had crashed, wiping away all of his savings. And he was resigned to working on the docks with a broken hand and collecting social assistance to feed his family during the Great Depression. However, Braddock was given a second chance in 1934, five years later. Some promoters were were looking for an easy win for their fighter, and so they recruited the the washed-up James Braddock to fight him. And Braddock, he needed the money, so uh, he decided he would take this fight. Uh, He had, over time from working on the docks, he had strengthened his left hand because his right hand was broken and messed up. And so uh, it turns out, to everyone's surprise, uh, that Braddock knocked out his opponent in the third round. And then eventually, after a a few more wins, he earned himself another shot at the heavyweight title against a boxer named Max Baer. And Max Baer's agents were looking for a a quick payday for their fighter, and so they they handpicked James Braddock as an opponent. You know, this potential Cinderella story of a guy coming from from, uh, this this, uh, hard place and now all of a sudden getting a chance at the title. This was a, a, promotion, a promoter's uh, dream here. And now Braddock was a, a 10 to 1 underdog in the fight. But to everyone's surprise, he, he overcame the odds. And he won the fight and earned himself the heavyweight championships. And so for that reason, he's often called the Cinderella Man. Maybe you've seen the movie with Russell Crowe, Cinderella Man. And that is because of his story of having had it and then losing it and then gaining it all back again. James Braddock was given a second chance, and he took advantage of it. Now, what does that have to do with our sermon today? Well, Jonah chapter 3 is really a a story of second chances. Jonah was commanded by God back in uh, Jonah chapter 1 to go to Nineveh. And we know that he chose to disobey, and he fled to Tarshish instead. And that got him thrown overboard on the the brink of death before God graciously sent a fish to rescue him. The fish then vomits Jonah up onto dry land, but the story doesn't end there. That's not where Jonah, Jonah has four chapters, not just two. And that's because Jonah is given a second chance. And the same is true for Nineveh. See, God, rather than destroying Nineveh for their evil, which God had every right to do, in his grace, he desires to send a prophet to them with a message to give the people of Nineveh another chance at repentance. And really, this idea of second chances in in Jonah 3 is, is a big theme of the whole Bible. I mean, if you think about it, God doesn't immediately destroy Adam and Eve when they sin, but he gives them another chance at life with him. God doesn't completely destroy the earth in the flood, 
But he gives Noah and his family a second chance to repopulate the earth in righteousness. The nation of Israel is given second chance after second chance after second chance to repent of their sin and return to God. God is a God of second chances. He is patient, slow to anger, and gives opportunity after opportunity for us to do what is right and to come to Him. And so as we, as we read through the text, as we study the, this God of second chances, I want you to think about areas in your life in which God has given you a second chance. And then ask yourself, are you using them to turn to God? Are you using them to glorify God? Are you using them to repent of your sin? Or are you letting them pass, squandering them on the desires and comforts of the world? And so if you're not already there, open up to Jonah 3, and we'll read together God's Word this morning. Jonah chapter 3, hear God's Word. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now, Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and and published through Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth And let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, and God relented of the disaster that he had said that he would do to them, and he did not do it. This is the word of the Lord. Just like how plays, movies, books have different scenes, we're going to look at the the scenes of this story here in chapter 3. And there's really three scenes in this chapter. We have scene 1 which is Jonah's second chance. We have scene two, which is Nineveh's second chance. And then we have scene three, which is God's response to that. And so that's what we're going to look at this morning under this big umbrella theme of the idea that God is gracious and that God gives people second chances. And so scene one, Jonah's second chance. 
See, Jonah 2 ends with these words. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. Now, I'm not sure how much time has passed between this incident and where chapter 3 begins, but I imagine it's probably a pretty short time frame. But the next, the, the, the time frame isn't really that important or, or else the author would have told us. What's most important is what God then commands Jonah to do in verses 1 to 2. Verse 1 says, then the, Lord, then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. Now, if you feel like you're getting deja vu uh, when I read those verses, it's because these words are almost identical to those in chapter 1, when Jonah was first called. Uh, If you flip back to Jonah chapter 1, verses 2, you'll see, uh, sorry, 1 verse 2, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it. And so we see here that God is giving this exact same command now to Jonah. And there's a little bit of humor here because Jonah is essentially back where he started. And Jonah tried to run, he, he tried to hide, but even after all he had gone through, he's, he's back at square one with the same command to go and preach to Nineveh. It's like he's just run a marathon but realized that he ran the wrong race and the race hasn't started yet, and he's, and he's got to be at the, at, the, at the start line ready to go. He still has yet to go to Nineveh. Now, a question you might have is, is why is God so set on this? And why is God so, why doesn't God just, you know, we have instances in, in Babylon where God just writes on the wall his message, where God reveals himself to Nebuchadnezzar. Why doesn't God just do that? Why is he so set on sending a prophet specifically to Nineveh. I mean, why is Nineveh so important to him? Israel is surrounded by hundreds of these pagan cities, so why Nineveh? Why send them a prophet? Well, reason is given in verse 2 and verse 3. Twice the city is called a great city, even an, an exceedingly great city. And depending on the translation you're using, and for sure in the, in the bottom, it'll have a little footnote And it says that in verse 3, it can actually be translated, it is a great city to God. It's a great city to God. In other words, Nineveh is not just any city. It's not just any city. It's a great city to God. Now the question is, what does that mean? What, What does it mean that it is a great city to God? Well, I think it's in reference in general to the greatness of the city. It's its size. Uh, It's an economic power, an economically great city. It has military strength, the capital of the most powerful military nation on the planet. But also, it's great because it's important to God. See, Nineveh and the people there were important to God. God has plans for this city, which we'll we'll see later. Now, a quick side note I want to talk about quickly is about this idea of cities. See, today many Christians, we don't like cities. And sometimes I think that's for good reason. Our cities have turned very liberal. And it seems like the the greatest opposition to Christianity comes from cities. And so it's understandable that we would want to really remove ourselves from these kind of centers of unbelief and idolatry. 
you'll have to talk to my wife later, but if you ask her and tell her if, if I like cities, she'll tell you that every time we drive through Toronto, I make at least one comment saying, I'm so glad I will never live in Toronto. I, I, I do not want to live in the city. But as we've been studying through the book of Jonah, I came to realize that, that God has a heart for cities. I mean, 50% of the world's population now lives in cities. That's in comparison to 14% 100 years ago. And so if we are, are called as Christians to reach people with the gospel, and if the cities are the places where the most people are located, that means that we can't give up as Christians on cities. I mean, look at the, the ministry of the Apostle Paul. Where does, where does Paul focus his ministry efforts? He focuses them on cities. You know, these places of, of cultural influence, the places where, where lots of people are, where they'll, they will hear the gospel and then they'll go and take it out with them. And so we don't abandon the cities. Even an evil city like Nineveh, you know, the Christian life is not about you know, living the, the coziest the safest life that you can live, fleeing to get away from, from any danger or challenge. And the example of the Bible is actually the opposite of that. It says, go to the places of danger that need the gospel the most. And I think we really see this modeled for us by the exiles when taken away to the evil city of Babylon. See, God's instruction for them is not, you know, get out while you can, but these are the words that he gives to them. Jeremiah 29, verse 4 to 7. He says, Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters and take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile. And pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. And so it's easy then to you know, kind of withdraw to the outskirts. It's, it's easy to, to flee to the safest place on the map. It's easy to assimilate, you know, become like culture so that we avoid persecution. But seeking the common good of the city you've been placed in and, and doing it without any compromise to your faith is much more difficult, but it's also the call that we have as Christians. And so God is sending Jonah then to this great city, Nineveh. And let's see, let's see Jonah's response. Look at verse 3. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. We see that this time Jonah responds to God's call with obedience. And so the question is, what changed? I mean, two chapters ago, Jonah, Jonah had this exact same call. He didn't go to Nineveh. And then I made the case last week that, you know, Jonah is not repentant. We'll see in chapter 4, he, he has no desire to see Nineveh be spared and to receive the grace of God. So what changed? Why is Jonah going to go this time? I think Jonah has come to realize that his disobedience isn't going to get him anywhere. Our disobedience isn't going to get us anywhere. I mean, he's still got the smell of fish on him to remind him 
of that. And so this time he obeys the call of God and he goes to Nineveh. I think that's a little bit of a, uh, a reminder to us. You know, our disobedience isn't going to get us anywhere. We often think, you know, we, we know the way. We know the, the correct uh, decision. And that if we do this, things are going to turn out better for us. Uh, but disobedience doesn't get us anywhere. God's plan is going to be accomplished, and we see that in the life of Jonah. And when he gets there, uh, verse 4 says that he begins to preach. And this is the message that Jonah begins to preach. Jonah began to go into the city, and going a day's journey, he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. You see, Jonah begins preaching this message, and his message is, is really very simple. It's only five words in the Hebrew. Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Now, I assume there was likely more to it in that he's, he's there preaching for a whole day and that the, the people respond in the, in the proper way that they should respond. So he might have said more, but what I find interesting is that the only thing that, that Scripture records for us is that he is preaching a message that's pertaining to the wrath of God against evil. See, Jonah's message is a, a message of the impending judgment that is going to come on the sinful people of Nineveh. Now, I want you to think for a second. Is, that, is, is this the message that we hear coming from Christian pulpits today? I mean, how many churches are afraid to speak on the wrath of God or, or sin or hell? How many churches are afraid that if they, if they talk about God's judgment of sin and if they call people to repentance, that people are going to leave the church? They don't want to hear that. Or even if you, if you look at your own life, we can say, oh yeah, other people are doing that all the time. But look at your own life. I mean, you have people that you, you love that don't know Jesus. Do you attempt to, to win them to Christianity by only offering them the benefits of being a Christian? Of being a Christian? You know, be a Christian and your, your life will be better. Be a Christian and, and your marriage will be saved. Be, be a Christian and, and God will be on your side. Be a Christian and you can enter into this great community that we have. You know, many of these things are, are true, but how often are we actually honest with people and just tell them, if you don't repent, the wrath of God is going to be on you for all eternity. See, if people, if people don't see that they are sinners deserving the wrath of God, then what need do they have for a Savior? Unless someone can see that they are standing in a burning, burning building that is about to collapse, what reason do they have to run out of it? And so we first point people to their sin and their hopeless state and the penalty that comes as a result of that, and then we point them to how by faith and repentance they can be saved from all of it. The mercy of God tastes so much sweeter when we first understand the wrath of of God. And so we shouldn't be, be afraid as Christians to speak about hard things. Now within Jonah's message itself, it, it is a hard message, but we also see that embedded within it is the grace of God. Jonah says, yet 40 days. See, God in His grace, He gives them 40 days. 
God gives time for the people of Nineveh to repent. Now, as I've said already, God could have destroyed Nineveh without sending them a prophet, but that is not God's desire. God's desire is that they would repent and turn from their evil ways. And so he gives them this 40-day period of grace where they are able to repent. And so we see the wrath of God and the grace of God woven together, even in Jonah's little message here. Now here, our story, so that's, that's the first scene, Jonah's second chance, and he, and he takes advantage of it. He goes and he preaches. And now we move on to our next scene. Scene two, uh, which is Nineveh's second chance. Nineveh's second chance. And to Jonah's dismay, you know, not even a, a day into his kind of three-day preaching tour, the Ninevites already begin to take advantage of the second chance, and they turn away from their sin. Look at verse 5. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. Let me say those first words again. And the people of Nineveh believed God. Now, do those words sound familiar? They should, because who else are those exact words said about in Scripture? They're said about Abraham. Abraham, in Genesis 15, verse 6, Abraham believed God. And so the irony here is that Abraham, who is the father of the Jewish nation, uh, says these words, and it is Nineveh, not the people of Israel, who also say these words. You see, the Ninevites are more like Abraham than the Jews themselves. The Ninevites are more like Abraham than Jonah himself, who refuses to believe God. You see, Israel required numerous prophets with, with thousands of words and, and books and messages dedicated to the prophetic judgment and warning, yet Israel would still not repent or believe God. Jeremiah in Jeremiah 26 preaches a very similar message to Jonah. He says, God is going to come and destroy unless you repent. And what does Israel do to Jeremiah? They grab him, they arrest him, and they say, hey, we want to kill this guy because this is what he's saying. Nineveh, however, who is aliens to the covenant of God, repents at the first appearance of a disgruntled prophet who preaches a five-word sermon. And so this account of Nineveh is meant to to put the the hard-hearted Israelites to shame and to lead them to repentance. You know, the covenant people are being outshone by these, these pagan Gentiles. Earlier, Dave read for us Romans chapter 11, and that's really... Uh, One of Paul's points, he says he went to be an apostle to the Gentiles so that he might stir up the Jews to jealousy so that they would come and return to the Lord. I think we're seeing a little bit of this here. God is is sending a prophet to Nineveh. They repent. And this is to stir, stir Israel to action, to see their own hard hearts and to lead them to repentance. And we see here that that their repentance, the, the people... Uh, seem to show genuine repentance by their actions. It says that they take up sackcloth and they call for a fast, from the least of these to the greatest. And that raises some, some questions here for us about repentance. You see, repentance is not just saying sorry. 
It's not just saying sorry. Sometimes we can equate those two. You know that if I've, if I've said sorry, then I have repented. I mean, maybe you and your, your spouse, you get in an argument and you, you say some mean things and, and afterward you go and you apologize. You say, I'm sorry, I shouldn't have said those things. Well, is that repentance? Well, it's definitely a, a part of repentance, but that's not all that repentance is. Repentance literally means to, to turn, to turn. The, the uh, Hebrew word is shuv, to turn. It's to, to turn your heart away from that sin and to turn to God, to turn to Christ. You know, sometimes we will just say that we're, we're sorry because we don't want to deal with the tension of the conflict. I found myself being guilty of that before. I don't, want to, I don't want to argue anymore. I don't want to talk about it. If I say I'm sorry, then hopefully it'll just be done. Or sometimes we can say, you know, I said I'm sorry. You didn't say you're sorry. Uh, and it makes you feel like, oh, you're the better person. You're the righteous one who has said sorry. But your heart hasn't changed at all. You know, we'll, we'll, we'll say if I, if I say I'm sorry, then, then things can just be good. And, and we don't have to deal with this any longer. It's kind of like a get-out-of-jail-free card saying sorry. Why are, you, why are you still mad at me? I apologized. But the truth is that that is, that is counterfeit repentance. That's a, that's a facade, this, this fake repentance. That's making it look like you're repenting so that your heart doesn't have to grieve and repent over the sin. John the Baptist, he warns against this fake repentance when he says, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. You see, true repentance will be shown in your actions and your behaviors. And it appears that what's happening here with the Ninevites is true repentance, that they've actually recognized they've been grieved over their sin, and now their actions reflect that they have truly repented. And we see that even the king repents. Look at verse 6. It says, The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. Now this, this, what the king is doing here is symbolic of him recognizing that there is really another king that has entered in, and that is the God of Israel. And so he, he vacates his, his throne, and he sits on this pile of ashes making way for God as king. Now, wouldn't that be amazing to see here in Canada? Our prime minister, our, our leaders recognizing their sin and making way for the kingship of God? And you might laugh and say, yeah, maybe when, when pigs fly, we'll see that happen. But I mean, that's probably the same thing that Jonah was saying. But here you have it. The king of the most violent and brutal empire in the world is repenting and yielding his throne to God. So why not Justin Trudeau? I mean, it's not super likely, but it is possible, of course. All things are possible with God. And so let that be the prayer of us for our prime minister. I know I can often hear a lot of, you know, fire and brimstone on Justin Trudeau. Let him burn. He deserves to burn, so let him burn. I think a better prayer for us is let's pray for his repentance. Let's pray that he steps aside and makes way for King Jesus in his life and in our country. 
another point to, to take note of here is, is how this change occurs. So we see this great mass repentance. How does this happen? How does Nineveh turn from its evil ways? And we notice that the, the means by which this happens is through repentance and heart change. Now, I'm all for, for Christians being involved in politics. In fact, I think that Christians have really dropped the ball when it comes to politics. We need to be more involved. But if we are to be involved, what we need to realize is that true change in a country comes from a change of heart. It requires hearts that are, are being changed and transformed by the Word of God, and from that is going to flow changes in society. You know, think of a disease. You don't want to just keep treating the symptoms of the disease because eventually it's just going to come back. Now, there are times when it is necessary, uh, you need to treat the symptoms of the disease, but ultimately, the goal, the, the, the plan should be that you need to get to the root of the problem and deal with it there. And in Canada, we have a disease. People hate the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, we can solve that by dealing with some of the symptoms of it, or we can get to the root of the problem, which is not enough people have surrendered their lives to Jesus as their Lord and Savior. And so let us, let us primarily focus on that to see long-lasting change in this country. Not that those other things are important, but that they, they must be sought with this idea of, of heart change being our primary mission. Now, the king and the nobles, uh, we see that, that the government can have a role in, in, in bringing about repentance. We see that the king and the nobles, they send out a proclamation to all of Nineveh, calling them to repentance. And here's what it says, verse 7 and 8. It says, And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let men and beasts be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. So really we see, we see three things in this proclamation from the king. Three commands for the people that they are to fast, that they are to call out mightily to God for forgiveness, and that they are to turn away from their evil and violence. Essentially, that is what repentance is. Calling out mightily to God and then turning away from their evil and violence. The king is calling the people to repent. And it's all rooted really in verse 9. Verse 9 is kind of the, the key to why all of this is happening. And verse 9 says, Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. See, the king ultimately recognizes that his future and the future of the people of Nineveh solely rests in the hands of God. See, they have all sinned. They, have all, they all have judgment coming to them. And they recognize that the only way out of this is if God decides to relent and have mercy on them. You know, one thing that we can draw from this is that the grace of God cannot be demanded. 
It cannot be demanded. You know, we can't say, I've done A, I've done B, therefore God must do C. See, I've, I've, I've stopped doing these bad things. I've, I've fasted. I've called out mightily to the Lord. Now God must show me grace. But the problem is that the second we demand the grace of God, it ceases to be grace. And grace by definition is God freely bestowing unmerited favor on us. You know, if we say, God, you must show grace to that person because they're a, they're a person, we're saying somehow they have, have earned or they deserve the grace of God. But God's grace is undeserved favor. You know, some people will say that God must give every single person a, a, a fair chance at salvation. God would never predestine certain people to salvation because that would not be giving every person a a fair shot at God's grace. But do you see the problem there? That you are demanding that God be gracious to everyone. And as a result, it's no longer grace. If salvation is, is freely given by God, which it is, to demand that He must freely give an equal opportunity for everyone takes away the freedom and the grace of God. And the king of Nineveh, he knows this. Maybe the king of Nineveh is a, a Calvinist. He knows that the fate of his city lies solely in the hands of God. God does not have to accept their repentance. He does not have to relent from his anger against their sin. If he chooses to, It's not because they deserved it or earned it. It's because he is free, as the Bible says, to have mercy on whom he will have mercy. And this leads to the final scene of our chapter. We've looked at Jonah's second chance. We looked at Nineveh's second chance. And now we look at God's response. Look at verse 10. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he said he would bring to them, and he did not do it. And so God sees their repentance, and in his freedom, in his grace, he relents of the disaster that he was going to bring upon them. Now keep in mind who these people are that are being left let off. These are, are people who for generations have been brutally slaughtering, enslaving, raping, torturing, and oppressing their enemies. They are wicked, vile, evil people who who all their lives have just been given to idolatry and sin. Is God really going to let them off the hook that easy? I mean, a lifetime of sin, but then they repent and all of a sudden they're spared from judgment? And how is that fair? How is that fair at all? Now, a question you might have, and I know a question that I have, is where is the justice in this? I thought God was a God of justice, so how can he let them go? I mean, a judge in a courtroom who who lets off a ton of criminals who repent of their actions doesn't seem to me like a very just judge. And this opens up an even bigger question beyond the people of Nineveh. Why doesn't God immediately punish everyone who sins 
and maintain His holiness and His justice. I mean, is it not true that the holiness, justice, goodness, and wrath of God demands that He, he deals with sin? That no sin be left unpunished? That every wrong be made right? If God were to, to solely act in His justice, wouldn't God punish all people immediately for all their sins and maintain His holiness? But God doesn't do that. I mean, all of us here are, are, are sitting here and we're still alive. And so clearly, God doesn't immediately punish our sin. But why? Well, because God is not only a just, holy, and wrathful God, but He's also a merciful and gracious God. And the mercy and grace of God, by definition, mean that God does not give us what we deserve for our sins. We deserve death and hell for our sins, but God does not give us that. But now you might say, okay, there seems to be a contradiction then within God. How do we reconcile these two things, that, that God is both just and merciful, that God is both wrathful and gracious? How does this make sense? How can this come together? Well, there's really only one way, and that is Christ. Bible says, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each one has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. How does God maintain His justice and His mercy? It's in the cross of Christ. See, on the cross, Jesus willingly bore the wrath of God, satisfying His justice and His holiness. Our sin was placed upon Him, and He took the just penalty that was due for our sin. The wrath of God was completely absorbed by His death. And as a result, we walk away free from condemnation. Romans 8 verse 1, there is therefore no more condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We experience the full mercy and grace of God, though we didn't lift a finger to accomplish it. And so how does God remain just? How does God remain merciful? It's in the cross of Christ. Romans 3 verse 26 says that all of this happened, quote, was to show His righteousness at the present time so that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. That's how God maintains His justice and His mercy. Now, that is for those who are in Christ Jesus, those who have placed their faith in Him as their Lord and their Savior. But what about those who have not? You know, what about the, the Ninevites who we know from history returned to their sin a generation later? Was God's wrath, you know, poured out on Jesus for them too? The answer is no. 
You know, God's wrath and justice is satisfied in, in only one of two ways. You know, either, either Christ, the first way, either Christ bears the wrath for your sin or you bear it. And so if you don't believe in Christ, you will pay for every sin that you have committed for all eternity in hell. And the reason that you don't immediately pay for those sins is because God is a patient God. God is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. But one day, one day His patience will be up. But the good news is that there is still hope. See, God does not delight in the death of the wicked. Ezekiel 33 verse 11 says that I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways, for why will you die? So if you're here this morning and you have not placed your faith in Jesus as Lord, God has graciously given you a second chance. Just as Nineveh had 40 days to repent before they were overthrown, God has graciously given you time to repent and turn to Him. And you don't know when that timeline is going to come to an end. You know, you might have 40 years or you might have 40 seconds left before your chance to repent is gone. And so don't wait any longer. Turn to the Lord and just as, just as God relented from the disaster that He was to bring upon Nineveh, He too will relent from the disaster that is coming to you for your sin. He is a gracious and merciful God, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And so we see that Nineveh was spared from God's wrath, that they were given another chance and that they repented and then God relented. Now, what do we take away from this aside from the things we've already looked at? But I want to look at three things quickly to leave you with. First, we see that God is a God of second chances. And so in what areas of your life have you been given a second chance? We already talked about if you don't know Jesus and you've been given a second chance to place your faith in Him and trust in Him as Lord and Savior. But what about for us who do know Jesus? Does, do we still have second chances? I think we do. Maybe for you it's a, it's a chance to, to fix a broken relationship. Maybe it's a chance to fix a broken marriage. Maybe it's a chance to, to lead your family starting now in a God-honoring way. Maybe it's a chance to get free from the addiction that's been enslaving you your whole life. Maybe it's a chance to confess the sin that you have been hiding and, and confess it to those that you have been hurting. Whatever it may be, repent. God has given you a second chance. Repent and rise up in obedience to God, and His grace will carry you. God is a God of second chances. Second takeaway, so you need to align your heart for the lost with God's heart for the lost. Align your heart for the lost with God's heart for the lost. God could have sent fire down on Nineveh, just as He did with Sodom and Gomorrah. It was the same message. You know, He's going to overthrow Sodom and Gomorrah. And yet He, he chose to be merciful instead. 
See, this, this chapter of Jonah reveals that God cares for more than just his covenant people of Israel. Do you? Do you, do you desire to see the lost saved? Do you look out at the world of unbelievers and have compassion on them as Jesus does when he looks out and sees those without a shepherd? Jonah wanted to see his enemies burn in the wrath of God. God wanted to see them spared. Who are you more like? Are you like Jonah? Are you like God? And then finally, let's not just people who, who talk a big game, but actually walk it. Let's not just say that we have a heart for the lost, but let's actually get out there and reach them. Let's not just say that we believe that Jesus is the only way of salvation, but let's actually get out there and point them to the only way of salvation. See, Jonah wanders into Nineveh hoping that they would remain in their sin. Let's go out, as, as Jesus says, to the highways and to the byways and call out to all to be saved from their sin. Now, I said in the, the very first sermon that you and me were probably more like Jonah than we are like God. But let that not be the case any longer. Let's love the lost like God loves the lost. Let's seek the lost like God goes and seeks the lost. And let's pray that God, in His grace, uses us to save the lost. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we see here the grace